Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by Drew Jane and Kent Bennett at Bessemer. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. So, so you guys are bo- both investors. We're, we're here today to talk about B2B marketplaces. Why don't you talk about the, the work that you do at, at Bessemer and then how you got uh, deep into the, the rabbit hole of, of B2B marketplaces. Uh, Kent, would you like to start? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I've been here at Bessemer 12 years. And the way we kind of organize ourselves at Bessemer is around what we call roadmaps, which is our sort of internal pretentious term that basically just means we have an idea, a hypothesis about something that's happening in the world that may give birth to some set of new startups. And so all of us, it's kind of the, the flat, free uh, principle at Bessemer that anyone can raise their hand and go out and chase down a roadmap. And then we sort of come together and, and internally we'll debate and discuss these things. And once people get excited about a roadmap, the, the investors kind of go off and, and are free to, to sort of prosecute the idea um, where they see it. So that's the, you know, we're, we're a, a, a larger firm with sort of 15 partner led teams. And so that's the way that it's not complete uh, chaos at Bessemer that we're allowed to sort of organize our thinking, go off and do things that we think are smart. And then we don't individually kind of try to come together collectively on a, on an investment decision. Cause that would just never, ever, ever happen. You'd never get all of us to agree on uh, on an invent, uh, interesting kind of startup idea, just by the nature of how weird and different these things look at the beginning. I've been here 12 years, and and Drew, um, maybe introduce yourself. I, I've been here a lot, a little lot, a little shorter than Kent. I've I've only actually been at Bessemer for two years, and um, prior to Bessemer, I I studied at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, engineering, and and also did a degree in business there. But really joined Bessemer kind of right out of school because, you know, I was fascinated by how technology is, is shaping the world. And, you know, I think in particular how technology is, is shaping these old fashioned industries that, you know, we've seen kind of stick around forever and, and not really be affected by software and, and data and some of the things we've seen in other consumer facing verticals. Um, and so I've been I've been at Bessemer for, like I said, just a little over two years. and. Um, have had the privilege to work with Kent and others on this kind of B2B marketplace thesis that we've worked together as a team on. And um, just as a kind of a plug for Bessemer being, being a young person, they've, you know, it's been really exciting to work, you know, one-on-one with everyone here and, and really in, in sort of that flat structure. I'll give a plug for Drew. So normally what happens at the beginning of a, a new roadmap at Bessemer is, you know, we're, we see something happening in the world that's weird that we don't really understand, but seems good. And usually the information we have, like the best kind of primary research we do is through our portfolio. So, you know, we may have, you know, more than a hundred active investments at any given time. And when we see something going like really well, even better than we thought, we sort of ask ourselves like, what the hell is this? And, wh- and why is this working so well? And so through a couple of different companies, maybe starting, you know, six, seven years ago, um, particularly companies that were sort of vertical um, software companies, vertical SaaS uh, companies, we saw you know some real outperformance. 
and specifically companies that were bundling financial services. So as an example, a company that was not only providing SaaS software, but also operating as the payments platform to an industry were having like really great results because essentially they were using this adjacent commoditized kind of old school line of business, the payments industry to subsidize the cost of their software development. And it let them give, you know, cheaper, better software, often more integrated software that their customers liked more, you know, again, like a cheaper price. And so that was really good. And the companies that were doing that were just seeing like incredible uh, results. And so we started looking for where else that could apply. And very quickly, we came to this kind of old school startup idea that had been tried, you know, a lot over the past couple of decades, where we looked at, you know, potential for software to connect businesses to other businesses to manage the sort of transactions. And we thought, well, maybe this playbook of using these adjacent, you know, commoditized, you know, potentially embeddable financial offerings as a way to monetize software would allow us to give software away for free um, and actually have some success with these, with these B2B transactional platforms. And so that was kind of like a half hunch that we had. And then, you know, to, to Drew's credit and to Connor Wadimel's credit, another one of our colleagues and, and Michael Drosch, the three of them, you know, basically slapped those of us who are a little bit older and said, this is like a real thing. This is happening more than just at a couple of these isolated companies. And uh, they motivated us to, to go out and try to, you know, get more academic, a little more formulaic with our thinking about what this pattern really looked like and where it could really work. Totally. And before getting into it, what were the biggest surprises that you found from, from, from doing this, uh, from writing this, this roadmap? You know, we write the roadmap when we're kind of done with the surprises for the most part. I mean, I, I think, well, maybe one surprise is that people found this really interesting. Like we got much more feedback on this than we might've gotten on, you know, similar efforts we've done in like the consumer spaces and spaces that you might think were, were classically sexier. I think there's just this latent interest among, you know, a certain set of, uh, of probably like-minded nerds on this topic. Cause it's, it's one of those things that I think everybody observes how like backwards and just ancient the behavior is around a lot of, a lot of just like core industries and how they do business and how they do their transactions. And so like, we thought it was really cool and sexy, but we had a ton of people just say like, Oh, this is amazing. I mean, I, pr- I probably have gotten more inbound emails from, from random people from the internet because of this topic than anything I've done in my career. So that was like a surprise, like that we weren't alone in our interests around this. As we were researching this, it was also a surprise. And, and it's sort of the reason that we pursue these roadmaps is we're trying to like sensitize ourselves to a pattern. And then we go out and look and find out if there are any companies actually like really operating um, with the business model, because, you know, the, the big failing of venture capital is if you have like an idea about something that might happen in the future, but it's like not going to happen for 10 years, that's like the most um, dangerous thing that you could pursue. Um, so once we kind of thought more about the pattern and went out and started looking for businesses, we found a ton. I mean, many dozen uh, businesses who were obviously way ahead and a lot smarter than us and earlier than us to this concept. Um, and so we found that this, this sort of pattern of B2B marketplace businesses, this modern version that we can describe in more detail was already well underway, which is you know, really exciting for us because it meant the time was now. And this was already, uh, we didn't have to you know, you know, try to push on the string to make this happen. 
Let's get into it. Okay, so B two B marketplaces 1.0 uh, didn't work uh, in, in some case, in, in in many ways. Uh, most B two B spend remains offline. Oh, why is that? And then let's talk about what's different with uh, 2.0. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit like we can speculate, um, and so we have a theory. We, we don't really know, but it certainly didn't work. And lots of businesses tried this around the dot com era, and then in the sort of decade that followed, and and most failed to get any real traction. I think certainly one element of why it didn't work is because unlike like B2C, you know, spaces where the internet has stepped in and made life better, like B2B transactions, if you just think about it, they, they aren't really that broken. Yes, they're offline, but if you are working at, I'll pick a, a, a grocery store and you need to order um, all the beverages that you sell for, let's say the alcoholic beverages, it's not a massive pain. You have a sales rep from a distributor coming into your store with a clipboard, taking your order down, telling you, oh, it looks like you're out of this product and, and, and placing that order. That's a trusted relationship. You know that person. You know, So for you to adopt uh, an old school platform, like it's got to offer you something really compelling and it can't really charge you anything. And so the, the models that, that people tried to roll out you know, a decade or more ago were all kind of Amazon clone-like. Like, hey, forget your current relationship with your vendor. You're going to come to us. We're this big, you know, presumably potentially down the line, powerful and scary platform. And we're going to run all those transactions. And, you know, we're going to obviously be making a margin on them or charging some sort of transaction fee. And just trust us. And, and we'll deliver the goods on time. And so a lot of these businesses said, like, I actually know the person I deal with. I have a relationship with them. It's not that hard for me to deal with them, and um, and so and I'm certainly not willing to pay any fee, you know, that comes out of my pocket. But even like the mistrust of of the sort of Amazon-like platform, I think held a lot of these a lot of these um, platforms back back in the day. And as we said, like what's different now? One of the things that's different now is that you can find other ways of monetizing these platforms that don't require you to sort of pick the pockets of the participants in the market today um, directly. And so you can actually include the existing infrastructure of these industries in these platforms. You can use the existing distributor layer, the existing retailers, um, and not actually ask them to, to pay anymore. So I think that's a that's a huge difference now that you can sort of lead with this, the free offering. Um, you know, the other thing that, you know, really stunk about the old school models is, I mean, A, they were built on software that was built a decade or more ago that, you know, was clunky and not all that easy to use. Um, they were often more horizontal in their approach and so didn't have like vertically specific knowledge that made them, you know, really easy to integrate and get up and running on day one and, you know, built the trust with with verticals that, that we're seeing now. So I think the vertical software playbook in general has has given a, a good recipe for a lot of these vertical B2B marketplaces to, to follow. Drew, would you add anything that I left out? Yeah, no, I think you you pretty much hit it on the head, Kent. I think, you know, if we parallel this to the consumer the world of consumer marketplaces where the goal in many ways is to remove the intermediary, and that's kind of what is the the ethos of all those companies that get started. I think we're seeing that, you know, those are old approaches that don't apply to necessarily to the B2B world. And, you know, a lot of these intermediaries, they have value beyond just the relationship, they might even have physical assets like warehouses and trucks. And so for a software company um, or a software enabled company to get involved in these transactions, you know, we just think 
you're not trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel here. You're just trying to make it better. And that's kind of why we think a lot of those previous platforms really just didn't, didn't really make the hurdle. Um, yeah, some, some things I summarized from, from your article are the 1.0 versions, you know, and you've addressed some of these points, but just to re- resummarize, horizontal didn't address specific vertical, uh, you know, vertical specific workflows, lacked integrated payments and lending, and then uh, the you know, new versions, uh, you know, digitized, or sorry, old versions digitized existing relationships versus facilitating new ones. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's it. And so when we talk about uh, more about the playbook for, for 2.0 solutions, like what, what do uh, or some of the criteria they need to, uh, to, to, be, to be successful? Some I, I took from your article are, we mentioned vertical specific, uh, no friction to purchase, you mentioned free, uh, don't threaten intermediaries too much, at least in the beginning, and then instill trust and facilitate new, new, new relationships. Do you want to expand on any of those? Sure. Or yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty simple. It's like any great startup that's ever built you have to show up with like a jaw-dropping, just slam dunk offering or people aren't going to pay attention. And especially in this world where, again, like, yes, the status quo is lame, but it's not like on fire. And so for, for these new offerings, they basically show up and, and often the, you know, we think about the buy side, the demand side of the platform being the, the side that you have to convince to do something new because they don't really feel most often they don't feel the pain of any sort of transaction costs because they're the sell side is sort of often swallowing that that pain. So you show up to the buy side and you say, hey, like you spend X hours a week dealing with your purchases. And it's kind of, of a pain in the butt. And you know, you may not have good systems to tr- track them or sort of manage the um manage the flows or 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 uh, account for things when they show up. And so we've got a better way. We've got this free piece of software. It's delightful. Maybe it's mobile first. Maybe it's, you know, a really slick web app. Um, it's smart. It knows what you ordered last time. It repopulates that order. It may auto suggest things that you, you know, were, would be thinking of ordering soon because we know that you ordered them X months ago. Um, so it's just going to make your life that much easier in every way. And it's free. Do you want to use it? And, you know, if you can come up with a proposition like that where it's free or it's just unbelievably low cost, everybody's going to say they'll check it out. And then, of course, the thing has to deliver. And so when it's vertically specific, when it works on day one, when it actually does the sort of things that you said it could and it and it remains free, we find that nobody says no if these things, if the products deliver. Then the other side of them is, you know, what is the value proposition for the sell side? And there, you can often also maintain a free or incredibly cheap price point to the seller. And your value proposition is kind of similarly a slam dunk. It's like, hey, you spend a lot of your time. You have sales reps, but they're spending a lot of their time pulled over to the side of the road, jotting down an order or talking to a customer about order details. Like, that's not a good use of their time. You want them to be selling, not order taking. And so, you know, take this product let your customers interface with this product. It will streamline the, the, all the order flow process and you can spend more time selling. And you know potentially, and, and you get into all sorts of variations of how this model can play out from there, but usually that's enough of a slam dunk for the distributors to say at a minimum, yeah, we'll accept orders through this product or cool, like we're, we're, we're into it. Or sometimes they're, depending on the sort of state of their industry, they're in so much pain that they say, holy crap, like we want to turn around and give this to all of our customers who aren't using it because it's making our life, you know, so much easier. 
So that's, you know, that's like stage one of what we're looking for is just a product value proposition that is so jaw dropping and so and so dominant over the existing workflow that it sees very rapid adoption. And we measure that, you know, quite simply in either if it's pre-launch, like a, a value proposition where we can go out and communicate it to the, the buy and sell side and, and like line up a bunch of customers. Uh, we're not particularly great salespeople, but if we can get a bunch of people fired up about something, then then we can pump, become believers even if it's pre-launch. Or if it's if it's launched, you usually see with these uh, with these um, you know incredibly low cost or free offerings, like the, the gross transaction value through the platform grows exponentially because these markets are small, these people talk, and often um, whether it's the distributors spreading it like incredibly rapidly because they're in touch with tons of retailers, or the retailers sort of spreading it because they talk to other retailers, you know, peers of theirs, um, you tend to see a pretty quick and, and often exponential uptake of the transaction value through these platforms. So that's kind of number one. It's like, how easy is it to get gross transaction value to flow through these platforms? Like, you know, that, that sign of traction. The problem with that, it, it, as you may have picked up on, is we haven't yet talked about how we're going to get paid. And often you're giving it away for free to both participants um, in the market. And so then the secondary question is like, can you monetize this? And so again, the, the, Strong hypothesis is that in many of these marketplaces, there are at least a few, if not several ways to, to monetize these transactions. And again, this is a playbook that we're seeing play out in, in all sorts of vertical SaaS companies, but you're monetizing because you're either the payments provider, you uh, could potentially monetize by being a working capital lender. It's pretty complicated to do that and it may take a while for you to roll that out. And um in a sufficient way with a with a lending partner because you wouldn't necessarily want to be a lender off your own balance sheet but um, you could be a working capital provider to these players you can you know do things like sell the data to a third party obviously with the with the understanding and permission of, of your customers often anonymously but you might be able to monetize the you know analytics around the industry because in many cases you're you're reaching into industries where there's like zero visibility you know, as a whole of like where the stuff is being bought and sold because the, because the offline paper, it's just like the data doesn't make it out alive. Um, and so the data can be, you know, valuable in a lot of these industries. One playbook that we're particularly excited about, but it takes, it definitely takes time. And so you need sort of the leap of faith often of a couple of years of building up volume is you monetize, you know, product advertising. And so, you know, in many ways, these B2B marketplaces are very specialized kind of Googles for their industry. And, you know, you can imagine that if you've got full visibility into what a retailer in a particular industry has bought or a, or, a, or even a, a, you know, an industrial um, manufacturer has bought and you know what products they've bought over time, then you can have a pretty good guess at who might be um, open to trying a new product. And so, you know, manufacturers, and again, this is going to depend a lot on the industry, but like if you pick the dental industry as an example, a manufacturer of dental products has very few ways to get to dentists with a new product offering, right? They sort of have to rely on this middle layer um, where the incentives are often mixed. And so the ability to say to somebody who may not be the, the sale layer, but actually the layer below the manufacturer like, hey, we've got a new way for you to access new potential customers of your product. That's incredibly valuable. And so you, you can imagine all, all sorts of opportunities to promote um, sales through this platform. You add all of those up and it's going to depend highly by industry. But, you know, that might be worth 
1% or higher, but maybe as much as like 10% in some industries of collective monetization of that transaction volume that flows through the platform. So those are like, you know, like as a, as a 10 minute way of saying like, we're looking for stuff to sell through the platform real quick and we're looking to get paid. Um, and we, and we want to believe in that, you know, from the outside, even though it often may take years for the monetization to turn on. Totally. And, and just before getting into specific examples or space that you're excited about, just want to make sure we also cover the, some of the trends that are, that are, um, you know, leading to, to this being possible. You, uh, you talked about millennials taking the reins and legacy industries and, and, you know, their expectations, uh, you know, software development getting, you know, easier, cheaper, faster, more generally, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, payments and lending unlocking new, new business models, uh, and then, uh, API driven architecture is maturing as a, as a paradigm. Do you maybe want to explain that, that last one and, and maybe anything else around the, the payments leading to new you know, models like factoring? Yeah. And I, I think this is all kind of emerging. If you look at that list, I think the thing that is the, the sort of most red hot why now is the, is that, and it's a little bit of a leap of faith, honestly, but is that we're seeing the ability to embed these financial services around these products that feels new now. And that allows, you know, investors like us, entrepreneurs to sort of take a bit of a leap of faith that if they can drive um, transaction volume through their platform, that they'll be able to get paid for it with this, these embeddable you know, financial um, paths. Now, some of those things are already available. Like it's easy to, to, it's not easy, but it's, it's, there's a clear path on how you turn on, you know, payments and in, in various methods in these industries. Others of these are still are just getting built. Like there are some, there are a couple startups right now who are turning on, you know, API enabled payroll as an example. So you may be providing a product that would be in a pretty interesting spot to be a payroll provider to some of these industries. If you know every salesperson for a distributor and you're effectively like, um, you know, becoming a bit of a, of a CRM for a distributor, you could be their payroll provider. Um, and so the, an API that would enable you to run that payroll is, is pretty compelling. Now that's, that's just sort of getting out there. So I, I think that's like the number one thing I think Dhruv would, would push me on, um, millennials at the reins. I'm, I'm a little too old to be in touch with that trend, but Dhruv, I don't know if you want to comment. <laughs> yeah, no, I think absolutely we're seeing that, you know, folks are going to work and they're transacting via fax, via phone call or emails, and they're going home and they're, you know, purchasing via Amazon. And and this is not just millennials. You know, I think people like to talk about millennials being um, driving this this change. Like th- these are also the older folks in the industry who are trying to, you know, upskill and, and get more digitized with their workflow because they too are also experiencing what it's like to use technology in the consumer world. And so I think, we're, you know, this is not necessarily a acute point in time that's changing everything, but uh, rather a generational shift that's happening for these managers who expect to be using modern software to purchase and to interact with their buyers and suppliers. And so um, we just sort of think of that as like a generational push to help folks purchase and engage with B2B software platforms. And uh, it's certainly being led by the millennial force. Yeah, and I think that's like a lot of the context for why this why this can see like really rapid adoption. And it also probably is driving some of the company formation, like many of the companies we interact with are founded by people who found themselves for whatever reason, like maybe a younger person with some software development, you know, exposure, but working in like one of these very old school industries and saying like, what the hell, like this is crazy. 
Um, and so a lot, a lot of the founders we talked to, you know, have that, have this story Drew just told where they're like, this is crazy. And then they say like, I'll start a company. Um, and so that's been a, a bit of a driving force. So, so you guys identified uh, three different types of, 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 of business model or, or different types of B2B marketplaces, wholesale marketplaces, high friction marketplaces, and infrastructure providers. Can you use, uh, talk about the differences b- between them? Yeah, I would say t- two of those are types of marketplaces. So like if you think of a, um, a wholesale marketplace, that's basically a marketplace where you have a commodity product that's, you know, a classic example of like grocery, right? Where you have like a type cereal and it's just flowing from a manufacturer of that cereal. It's a branded cereal to a distributor who's then putting it in a grocery store. That's like one very specific type of purchase where the grocer knows that they need more, you know, frosted flakes on the shelves and they just request frosted flakes. It's like a certain skew, it's certain unit size. And basically you're just looking for a piece of technology to mediate that transaction, but, but it's a hundred percent clear what the, you know, what needs to happen on the transaction, what the distributor is being asked to provide, et cetera. There's another very different type of transaction where you need someone to service your, you know, oil derrick. And that's very custom to you. The location is custom. The timing is custom. And so all of the, all of the, that sort of transaction and, and Drew was spending a ton of his time looking at those transactions. So maybe he should speak to that, but that's, that's a very different flow where essentially you can't provide like a, a an Amazon like click to per, click to buy experience, but you can provide a lot of software to eliminate a ton of the pain of the RFP uh, workflow. And Drew, I, I'm sorry to step on your answer there, but I don't know if you'd add anything to that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we're thinking about it through through the lens of how much pain and friction the buyer and the seller have to go through. And, you know, if you think about some old school processes, um, like in the world of trucking and logistics, or when you need to get, you know, acquire a custom manufactured part, I mean, these are really complicated processes that just like Kent said, they can't really happen in a clickable, you know, purchase online. And so typically, we've seen those opportunities largely served by large brokerages who take, you know, a substantial transaction fee. And I think um, this, you know, what we, we label these kind of high friction marketplaces and think specifically here, our thesis is that, you know, we think that because there are these really high friction processes with intermediaries like brokers who are charging sometimes anywhere from five or 10 or even 20% uh, in fees, um, our, our hypothesis is that we think, a marketplace could actually eat into some of that margin. And, um, and so the, the real, the question is, you know, un, you know, separate from the lower friction commodity goods, you know, how do you get into these workflows if they're so complex? And I think that's where we're seeing the value of, of these, you know, software platforms that can be developed very quickly, you know, light infrastructure and get off the ground and easy to use right away. Um, if we can give those sort of away for free or almost free, and get everyone on board. Uh, our thesis again is that we think once you have those folks on board, you'll be able to get into that flow of transaction and, and over time actually potentially take a transaction fee. And again, we, we sort of break it down into these high friction versus low friction because we see the difference in the way that buyers are experiencing the pain and the friction. And so each market we look at is actually slightly different. Um, and we, we don't, you know, this is just kind of the way we're seeing it today. Yeah. And we, and we should say like, we, we enter all of these with like 
total humility that we are idiots and we're about to learn about a, a vertical that will be undoubtedly completely different from every other vertical. I mean, there's some shared characteristics, but like the playbook that we've seen um, every company that we've gotten excited about, you know, executing on is informed by their specific knowledge of a vertical. And it's always a little bit different, right? So there's not, there's not a recipe. The, the third category that you mentioned, the infrastructure tools, that's really the sort of classic picks and shovels um, story, which is, look, this, we're seeing this happen. We're seeing these B2B, you know, platforms being built and they often have some need of a, of a, of a service. Now they could build it themselves, but like payments as an example, like it's easy to see a payments provider potentially being built in a really um, nice fit way to service lots of these B2B marketplaces, similar for payroll, similar for, you know, potentially advertising services um, or other services. So, so we're seeing some of those kind of adjacent um, opportunities. That's a, that's like a smaller set, but we still think um, a relevant part of this ecosystem. Let's talk more about the subspaces and subsectors by which you are excited to uh, invest in and, and looking at. Sure. And so, I mean, that's one of the things that is, you know, so exciting about this particular roadmap for us is that, you know, often we'll, we'll roadmap some trend or area of the world and it'll have potential for, you know, a couple interesting companies to be built. Here we're talking about like kind of every sector of the global economy. And so, you know, and we're not just talking about like a hundred trillion dollars of transaction value because you have somebody extracting a commodity, selling it to a manufacturer, that manufacturer doing something to it, selling it again to somebody, that distributor selling it again to somebody. So you actually you're like, are talking about several multiples of the global GDP of transaction value flowing, you know, on clipboards in, I don't know, hundred plus industries or sub industries. So this, this is really, really big. And we have a, like a short list of things that we're looking at at any given time. And then on a given week, Dhruv is coming to us and saying like, oh, I found another one in this industry. You never believe that, you know, this was a thing, but it turns out there's $50 billion of transaction value flowing in this way. that's totally inefficient. Um, and so maybe I'll let Dhruv list off a couple of his, you know, high targets at the moment. Dhruv, maybe we should save the best ones for ourselves, but uh, um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, no, it's, uh, well, there's, there's, there's too many of them. I mean, but it's, uh, it's really fascinating. I mean, Eric, to answer your question, your earlier question, what has surprised you most about this roadmap? It's just the sheer width of, of opportunity here. And we've looked at so many different industries. I'll just rattle off a few. I mean, we're looking at ocean freight, you know, air freight. We're looking at supply chains and healthcare, construction. You know, we've looked at even professional services like real estate, banking, you know, and, and even getting so far as um, things like airline parts, you know, we, when I say this is wide, I mean, this is this is wide open. And in terms of, you know, how, you know, how we look at it, I think we're being fairly opportunistic. Um, I'd, I'd be a liar if I said I had a, a real scorecard or some sort of way of coming up with the next great industry to disrupt. So we're, we're very excited to talk to pretty much any entrepreneurs that are working on, you know, these different marketplaces, because, there's some there's so many of them that we just don't even know about um and and that's kind of what makes it so exciting yeah, yeah. so you you have at the end you know good better best b2b marketplaces why don't you talk about sort of what separates a, a good one from from a great one and and what are the different uh you know tools you use to analyze yeah so i think it's it goes back to those three dimensions we were talking about earlier that or the two dimensions plus a plus a bonus that we were talking about earlier that we we pay attention to one is 
How efficiently can they mobilize transaction value through their platform? And so at the end of the day, these are these are kind of like recurring revenue software businesses. They have some predictable level of revenue. Now it may be theoretical, but so that's tied to how easy is it for them to drive gross transaction value through their platform. So as an example, if you have a, a sales rep for your business and they can go out and, and do their job and at the end of the year point to you know, $100 million of gross transaction value that is now flowing through the platform, then that rep has generated some amount of value. And that's and it's a little bit hard for us in the early stage to know exactly what that is until we know what percent of that value we will be monetizing, right? So that's the second dimension. One is the GMV velocity. Second is the percent of, you know, today real monetization, maybe midterm theoretical, but like easy to see achievable monetization once you put in things like payments, et cetera. And then there, there may be a, even like a longer term, you know, kind of crazy upside monetization of, you know, things that are a little bit more far field. Um, and so we're, we're always balancing those two, like, okay, how easy is it to get GMV flowing and, ha- and how well do you get paid? And then the third dimension we look at, of course, is, is market size. So there are probably some of these markets that are going to be too small for, you know, massive investment in a startup because they're like a $10 billion market where there's only like a 1% monetization opportunity could still be really great businesses for individual um, entrepreneurs to, to pursue, but probably not as appropriate to raise a ton of venture capital. And so, yeah, those three dimensions, GMV mobilization, you know, the, the sort of scale of monetization and then uh, the size of the market, those are, those are kind of the three easy ones. And then we have like these warning signs we look for, like if, if there's an industry where distributors have like massive profit margins, that's, that's weird. Right. And there's probably some inefficiency or information disadvantage that's driving that that might make it a little bit more ripe for adoption than others. Uh, Like on the, on the flip side, if there's an industry that has incredibly fragmented, you know, end consumers, they're probably dealing with, you know, some distributor power that, that, um, you know, where you could mobilize them to level the play, playing field a little bit. So they're, they're like some, you know, kind of descriptive elements like that, that might make one, might make us like a little more um, interested as we're early in our investigation in a particular industry. But then again, it's pretty idiosyncratic space by space. And, and we're often surprised as we dig into something where we realize like a particular industry is like an incredible fit or like a lousy fit, even if we thought at first it might, it might've been promising. Yeah. Is there anything that didn't make the piece that if you wrote this roadmap today that you would have uh, added to it or that, that has changed since, since writing? If not, no pressure, we can skip. I mean, the one thing that's that's continued to surprise me over the last year is just how global this roadmap is. We're seeing companies get started in Europe, North America, you know, South America, and, and a lot now in Asia as well. And, you know, we're, we're based in the U.S., but we're... we're you know, we have offices all over the world. And I think just being receptive to the fact that supply chains look so differently in places like Latin America or in Asia that have, that might potentially be even more ripe for disruption than they are in in certain areas in in North America or Europe. So um, I think I've just seen a lot of activity recently that's made me start to think a little bit more about how that's going to play out for this whole roadmap. I think that's interesting. The the other thing i think is newer to me is just as we've seen it play out in practice a couple times is that as you establish your ability to be a trusted platform the distributors go from you know 
admittedly maybe a little suspicious at first that you're going to come and try to fleece them to actually asking you to build them more product that they will pay for. And so there have been many cases where distributors are pulling these platforms in saying like, oh, can you build a CRM tool for my sales reps or a you know, field tracking tool or, you know, or help me with better interface into my ERP. I mean, the, these distributors ERP systems are, are typically a fragmented mess of just junk. Um, and so it's not necessarily a, a part of the software stack that you would ever want to develop lightly, but I think there's longer term an opportunity to be more of an operating system for the distributor layer. Uh, and that's kind of a newer notion for us, I think. Totally. Let's go into detail on, on some uh, specific spaces that you, you guys have looked at just to see like who are even the major players or what's going to determine a winner. You, know, you, you have a list of spaces by spend, you know, freight, trucking, energy, uh, agriculture, you know, real estate, uh, apparel, banking, manufacturing, grocery. Are there any ones that you've looked at deep enough to be able to sort of, uh, you know, just talk a couple minutes about? Oh man, we could we could bore you to tears with all of those. Bore us, please. Yeah, look, I mean, I think like one that's just relevant that is kind of a fun example, just because we're all consumers of it every day, is food, right? Where you just think about the ways that food gets into your body, and this is in like a, it's shifted a little bit in the era of COVID, obviously, but um, you know, you've got you've got grocery stores who are ordering from you know massive distributors as well as local regional distributors. You've got restaurants who are ordering their um, food from a, a set of regional players as well as a couple of national players like um, U.S. Foods and Cisco. Uh, both of those players are also ordering their beverages and including their alcoholic, alcoholic beverages from a totally different set of distributors. And that's like a massively fragmented and ugly space. There on food, you've got, you know, that could be three different um, separate businesses. They're providing like really interesting and, and different utilities. You've got how do the farms get their product to the to the sort of agricultural warehouses um, and that entire process of how a, a produce shop buys its, uh, buys its oranges and, and sources, you know, different produce at different times of the year from different places. Like that's a total mess and that's all paper-based um, today. And so in, in all of those spaces, and I'm probably forgetting some, I mean, you've got some like other downstream um, streams of food and they, they get, um, you know, consumed by manufacturers who turn it into, you know, the products we like. So like the sort of like raw food inputs that go into the beer you drink. Um, like how do they buy that? All of those could be individual businesses. They're, they're all big enough scale and they all have vertically specific enough needs that they call it all, they could all be separate businesses um, and really big businesses. And we've looked at all of those spaces and we found startups in, all, in every nook and cranny of that space and often, you know, multiples, um, so that's just like one example, but, you know, it's every rock we're turning over these days, we're finding, um, you know, it's rare that we turn over a space and don't find an entrepreneur trying to do something to modernize the uh, transactional workflow. Drew, would you, do you have any favorites you'd add to the list? Yeah, I mean, uh, Ken stole mine because I'm a food geek, but otherwise, I think, you know, I think one area we've started to spend a lot more time in is just general freight and logistics. I mean, I think Flexport has made a lot of waves over the last couple of years. Um, and so people know that name, but people forget that like, you know, container shipping is just one part of a much larger set of challenges around, around freight and logistics. And again, these are humongous industries. So, uh, you know, if you look at where, you know, packages and materials and, um, if you're thinking about, you know, raw materials or or even um, dry bulk materials, like, I mean, the, the list goes on. And I think just in general, 
we're starting to see a ton of activity in that space, um, probably in part because of the success that Flexport had in the container side. So I think we expect to see a few, you know, billion dollar platforms emerge in these other categories and freight as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I look again, we could put everyone to sleep talking about like the manufacturing opportunities, the sort of like global commodity um, opportunities. Um, it's, uh, you know, this is Drew and I have both taken the red pill or the blue pill or whichever is the pill that you take. And uh, we're, we're just seeing it everywhere. Right. Every time I'm driving around a truck will like pull up to me, you know, at a stoplight and I'm like, Oh yeah, there's another one. Like this, these, you know, these are just massive multi-billion dollar industries that we don't often think about um, that are all kind of hiding in plain sight, ready to be modernized with, um, with better tech. And again, the playbook is not to rebuild the trucks. It's just to make sure that, you know, all these, all these transactions are being tracked by software that will add value to, to both sides of the marketplace. So it's, it's, it's kind of everywhere you look. Yeah. Are there certain dynamics that we haven't yet discussed that make trucking you know, more ripe than something like home appliances or auto, you know, just one of these more ripe than, than the others or, or, or harder to do versus easier to do or how, how should entrepreneurs yeah. who are looking at this, you know, sort of cold, you know, th- think about the pros and cons of going to different, different ones. Yeah, look, I think when it is a real stretch to monetize because you're dealing with an industry that has been so commoditized that all of the margin has been really hammered out of multiple layers of the, of the ecosystem, then you're just up against a bigger headwind. And so it's really nice to find an industry that for whatever reason has a bit of a distortion where you find that the distributors are, are maybe more profitable than they would be in a, in a commoditized industry. Um, so you're kind of looking for that. You're looking for an industry, you know, frankly, like the global food chain is pretty efficient. There's not massive margins available in the middle. So you're looking, so in that case, we're more interested in aspects of that food chain that are less, that are less efficient where there are big margins. And that would be like, my general advice is not true, but, but like more specifically, I would just say like, go to a conference where you're the, um, you know, you're in the sort of youngest decile of people there, not, not to be ages, but you're, you're in the decile of people there who know something about modern software, um, you know, no matter your age and just start paying attention and get into the details of how people live their, their daily lives. And, and, you know, that's much more important than like a top down, you know, macroeconomic analysis of these industries is like, get in and actually know something and really understand the customer pain because it's often like a very vertically specific feature that is the killer hook that opens the conversation up. It's not enough to say like, Hey, I got a software platform that will mediate your transactions. It's much more important to say like, don't you hate it? You know, as a, as a, a an alcohol distributor, when you have to go into the bar and like give them another fresh stack of coasters every time you want to get an order, like, this is like a free coaster delivery thing that, you know, comes with an order. So it's, it's, it's like almost knowing like the gimmick that will open the conversation is, is as important as the core playbook, like the core playbook will work, but, um, but customizing it to the industry is often the nuanced thing that gets, that gets these things going. Are there any things that we haven't yet discussed um, on the topic of beating marketplaces that you think would be, would be good for us to, to get into? No, I mean, look, I think we are inspired longer term by the power of monetizing advertising um, as part of this uh, part of this playbook. And I think what is just part of that inspiration and and fun to pay attention to is like what the existing B2C marketplaces are doing in terms of of their ad um, 
products. And so, you know, if you look at Amazon's <laughs> quarterly reports, the percent of revenue they get from their ad product as a percentage of the transaction value going through their platform is like stunning. And, and I don't have the latest in front of me, but it's like north of 3% already. And that's for a really pretty efficient um, and competitive marketplace. Uh, so for some of these industries where you have like massive transaction values, massive values to these relationships, we think the ability of um, certain providers, um, their desire to advertise um, in, in a way where they have never been able to advertise to their end, um, you know, purchaser the, to the sell side before or to the buy side before, that's going to be really, really interesting. And so while we're being conservative and we're certainly not counting on, you know, massive monetization there, there could be some industries where, where that um, the monetization of advertising, you know, exceeds 10%. And so again, you'd need a high margin industry with like real dysfunction in terms of like, you know, visibility and connectivity between the, the you know, original manufacturers and the end, um, you know, retailers. But um, we think those industries exist and, uh, and we're really excited about that. Sexy stuff, I know, but that's, that's what gets us up in the morning, man. That, that's awesome. Drew, Drew uh, no pressure. Now. Is there anything that you, you think we didn't yet cover that you want to leave us with? I think, you know, I just, your, your previous question about entrepreneurs and where they should be looking. I mean, I, I do think that there are these huge brokerages and it just fascinates me that earn, you know, that market cap at tens of twenties of thirties of billions of dollars of value. And I would, as an entrepreneur, just be looking at those and saying, you know, wow, that has, that, that's incredible. And, and I think, you know, that would be my piece of advice to people getting into this industry is like, kind of chasing down existing, you know, brokerages or, or intermediaries and, and figuring out a way to get into those markets uh, because they are so big and they're, and they're there and they're publicly traded. And it's, uh, it's, it's really just sitting there up for grabs and it's a matter of time before someone figures out how to break into those industries. So um, turn yourself to kind of follow the margin, if you will. And, uh, and that, that's pretty much my last point. And and as always, and Eric, I think I I read something you wrote, but, it's the it's the really boring industries, the ones that like yeah. just are going to destroy a cocktail party conversation. Like those are the ones that I'd be investigating first. Because look, we like grocery, we like food, but like so does everybody. I mean, it's sort of as people get into this concept, they start with some of these more common industries. And so, if you're an entrepreneur and you have you know special insight or access to insight in an in industry that's big, but like under the under the radar in some way like i might start there like i i keep waiting for somebody to do something in the government purchasing space because because government is like you know the classic like most boring um industry like you you talk to people about government technology and they just like their eyes roll back in their head and they just don't want to hear anything and i think someday somebody's going to create the platform that mediates um you know the trillions of dollars that our government spends um, as a purchasing agent, and that may not be one business, that may be 10, but, you know, things like that, I, w- I would just advise people to go against, you know, any instinct to, to seek out the sexy spots in this industry. The more boring, the better, as long as it's big. Yeah. The more boring, the better. That's a good place to, to, to leave us with. Um, <laughs> uh, Kent, what, what other um, roadmaps have you done, uh, you know, in the last, I don't know, a couple of years or so, or, or plan to do uh, upcoming? Yeah, so this is a this is a real turn for me into like a, a very boring uh, world. I, I spend a ton of my time looking at um, consumer facing companies and direct to consumer investing. So I, my last roadmap was a series 
on consumer earthquakes, what we think uh, it looks like to have like sort of a generational defining consumer company. So this is, that was my last one before this. I don't know what's next. You know, I, I'm just waiting for Drew to come up with his next great idea and for, for me to me to capitalize on it. But um, uh, we're, we're- AR, okay. AR and VR. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't think that's it. <laughs> totally. Um, you, you were joking, Drew? It's like too far away? It's only half a joke. I'm not sure. But whoever's, it's all about timing, right? So, <laughs> totally. Yeah, look, I, I think, Eric, we, we're always looking for something has to be, there has to be like a really good case for a why now. So, so again, it's like, first, we, we really want to see a business that's benefiting from a dynamic before we really bet on a roadmap. So it's not enough for us to have, like, we're just not smart enough to have an idea that will predict the future. We really want to see that the future is now in some form, even if it's just like, a, you know, an element of a business model that's, that inspires us. And so really we're looking more than anything to our portfolio companies, the smartest entrepreneurs we work with. And when one of them like does something really smart, it really helps their business. We think like, is that just going to work here or is that a thing that we could roll out in a, in a bigger way? So that's, that's kind of what I'm always listening for. And, and I don't have another idea like this. I mean, frankly, again, we think this is a space, this roadmap could be a decade plus of a hundred, you know, billion dollar plus companies. Um, so that's probably enough for us to uh, focus on for the time being. Totally. That's a, a great place to wrap. Um, my guests today have been Kent Bennett and Drew Jane at, at Bessemer. Uh, we have a co-investment in, uh, in Astorian, which is a B2B marketplace, and look forward to working more with them. And if you're an entrepreneur listening, I uh, highly recommend you, uh, you, you consider working with them or reaching out, especially if you're working on a B2B marketplace. Uh, Kent, Drew, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.